Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New, New, on the New Books Network. I've only said that a thousand times, so of course. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking once again with Dr. Brian Hatcher, who is Professor of Religion at Tufts University. We'll be speaking about a brand new OUP publication that's part of the AAR Religion and Translation series. And it's called Against High Caste Polygamy, an annotated translation. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Raj. It's great to be back. It's really great to see you. I guess listeners can't see you, but I can. And that's a real treat. Uh, those listening. Yeah, sometimes uh, folks like to peek behind the curtain sometimes. So for those listening, I actually do all podcasts on Zoom. So there is a video uh, interface. Um, uh, we can see each other. Uh, when I started the podcast, um, well, I started my involvement with the podcast. The podcast predates me, of course. I was doing interviews on Zoom. This was maybe 2019, 2018, actually. I've been teaching online since, on Zoom since 2017. And um, no one knew what Zoom was. <laughs> and now the world has changed, hasn't it? We we know far more about Zoom than we care to, probably. <laughs> I found myself wondering, oh, wonder what shirt I should wear for my interview with Raj today. I thought, well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you don't even have to wear a shirt. You don't even have to wear a shirt, bro. Well, I, um, listeners, I have a shirt on. <laughs> yes, he does, and it's 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 a, it's a dapper business casual dark colored shirt. Very apropos. Um, the last time I spoke to you was. Uh, around the beginning of the pandemic, wasn't it? It was 2020. It was, it was March, March or April 2020. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. About, yeah. You know what's really funny, particularly you know, inauspicious timing for a book to come out, right? That AES had just canceled, I think, and all the everything was shutting down. And I thought, well, this book is not being seen by anybody. So I was really grateful to you to pick it up for the. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was my pleasure, and, and as I see it, my duty actually as well. Um, but what's interesting is that um, I think I did maybe twenty podcasts altogether the year before that, 
And I just inherited in 2018, I did a handful, maybe about 20-ish in 2019. When the pandemic hit, I thought to myself, hey, this is an opportunity to contribute to the war effort because I thought, look, people are at home um, needing content. People might be teaching online uh, and the digital content might come in handy. But also I thought people are cooped up just to even have a conversation with someone on Zoom. Um, and what's really interesting, Brian, is the world is so changed that initially I thought I'd amp up the the um, the pace. So I was doing four to six a month ish, exactly starting April twenty twenty, and I sort of thought, let me continue while the pandemic is still an issue, and you know, it was an issue on and off and on and off, and you know, you know the story. We've all lived through it. Those of us who are still here, um, and the pace never changed, and so now it's just part of the pandemic has sort of. Yeah, you know, co-author this lifestyle of podcasting for me. It's really interesting. Um, well, we're all grateful. Uh, it's an immense service, as as you say. It's kind of your duty, but it's not a duty. It's something you choose to do, and we're appreciative of it. I know I am. Yes, thank you. I've gotten some some lovely comments over the years for sure. I've, I feel the the community appreciates it, and the listeners as well. And you know, it's it gives me an opportunity to. Uh, in an ultra universe, I, I think I would have done uh, ethnographic research, <laughs> but it gives me an opportunity to do to to to, to interview people about their research, um, yeah. which is kind of fun. So, kind of an ethnography. Yeah, I suppose I suppose it is. Um, so, your book is called "Against High Caste Polygamy," and so first and foremost is going to be the question of how did you get a, how did you get into this? How how did this project come about for you? Well, I mean, it's a perfect question to begin with, just thinking about uh, our prior interview back in 2020, because this was really my pandemic project. Uh, I had, and you mentioned ethnography, I had a project going on that was more field-based in West Bengal, studying the uh, expansion of the Dastami, a network of matas or monasteries around Southwest Bengal. And I've been going annually to visit sites and try to you know, find evidence on the ground if I could. So was, that was really going full speed and I was having a lot of fun with it. And then of course the pandemic hit. And as you say, we were all locked down at home and there were just all those evenings uh, thinking about what can I do with my time? And thankfully there on my shelf was uh, the Rajanabali of the Dashagler's collected works. And I thought the other great reform work that he had written and for which he was well known was his um, uh, salt on the practice of cool and polygamy. So I thought I had done widow marriage and translated that back in 2011, 2012. And I thought this is the bookend to that. So I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands. Maybe this is the perfect pandemic project. So I just kind of began doing it in a loose leaf binder and translating with a pencil and sitting up at night listening to music doing that and then I realized over time obviously this was going to become possibly the makings of a book so very much something to keep me occupied and kind of give me solace in all those uh, weeks and months of lockdown but it also it felt like one remaining task that I had uh, addressed with my work on the Dao over the years so I was really pleased to kind of have it emerge in that way and become something that in time could become the book that it has. So. I love the fact that, um, I mean, there are many ways in which books come into being. Um, uh, 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 often, you know, uh, the whole dissertation to book project that is so seminal to to academic enterprise. Um, 
uh, to have mom and tenure uh, portfolios, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's, 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 it's refreshing to have an organic process where you're just doodling away with ideas and you're learning, uh, you know, that I've got time, I've got interest, I'm learning. And hey, all of this learning, I'll put together and present it to teach others what I've learned. And that's, I, I see publication as education. That's probably why I resonate with the podcast so much. This is about teaching the public what we've learned. And um, tell us about, uh, let's see, what are you looking at for your data for this book? So the, you know, the principal datum was the the work that Bindashagar wrote uh, under the title in Bengali, Abahu Bibaho, which is like plural marriage, if you will. Um, and he actually wrote two, two books, um, uh, part one and part two. Part two is longer than part one, and it's it's. I decided not to translate it, at least not for publication, because it's very dense with uh, ad hominem attacks on other pundits who didn't agree with him about the Sanskrit basis of this law or this uh, custom, if you will. And so it's it felt very, uh, I don't know, a, a very microcosmic world that a lot of readers wouldn't really find all that attractive to enter into or have their even their bearings to get around in it so book one uh which he published in 1871 struck me as having much more continued salience resonance on a lot of levels with thinking about colonial intellectual history and development of, of hindu law in this period um thinking about reform generally in the in the late 19th century so there were a lot of reasons why it struck me as a work that um uh, more translation. And so I had the collected works in which Bahubahu Part 1 was included. And then I had found, thank, thank God for archive.org and all these online sources that we have now, I could get access to uh, a PDF copies of uh, scanned versions of the book. Uh, so I was able to kind of make sure that the, the printed version of the collected works was, you know, congruent with what the, the original publication looked like. And then, thankfully, you know, we're all grateful for the Zoom and technology. We can be in touch with colleagues in Kolkata and in London and places and make sure that we can double-check references where we needed to and all that. So for a project, when you're trapped at home, you at least could reach out through, through uh, social media and Internet to, to make sure you were right keeping on track. So so the data was really just the the published text of Bahu Bilaho, uh, uh, some Bengali dictionaries and, and the project of translating. At the stage for us, at the stage about this high caste polygamy, what was going on or not going on? Yeah, well, what was really going on robustly was a, was basically a, a business or an economy ba- built around the exchange of of women in, in a, you know, a sort of customary practices. Vidashagra dresses Brahmins and Kayasthos, uh, but it's also common amongst Baidya communities and, and Bengal and other groups have uh, practices of Kulin exchange, but his focus in the book is on Brahmins and Kayasthos, the two most prominent sort of groups. So broadly, to, just to back up this Kulin polygamy that he's talking about, it's, it's restricted to Bengal. It's a very very much a Bengali Hindu practice that comes out of what Ron Indian would call the middle period or sort of medieval Bengal develops over time, and Bindashagar gives us an attempt to sketch the history of how it developed. So that's one issue of why why did it develop the way it did. But then in his day, 
what he's looking at is the, the rampant, what he thinks are uh, the rampant abuses of this custom and the, the principal uh, target and suffering of this is, of course, the, the women trapped inside this economy who are basically, you know, used in exchange relations where, whereby groups are attempting to improve or maintain their status through transactions in which the, the women are exchanged and wealth is at the center of this, right? And so what you have is a system in his day where a, a high caste man with Kulin status, so Kulin speaks to a high high grade status within Brahmin or Kaya's communities and the targets of gifting of, of women ideally. And so some of these men were in a position to accept multiple brides, uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50. There's reports of upward of 100 wives. Uh, and of course, these men would inevitably die. And their wives were often quite young. And so they were in the lives of enforced widowhood. Uh, and even when alive, if you can imagine a man with 20, 25 wives, he often didn't see the majority of them at all is maybe once a year. So it's a, it's a very rampant system in which women were trapped and, and suffered tremendously. They often lived in their maternal uncle's home and they were, of course, a burden on the family and uh, seen as just a, a kind of drag on the economy of that family. Uh, and so they're just a really miserable existence. And when their husband died, they had to live in life of widowhood with all those restrictions, many of them would actually take the, the drastic step of committing suicide to escape the, strict, the strictures and rigors of what they were faced with. Others were lured into lives, you know, sex trafficking, basically. Um, in in Dashagar's day, you know, the, the words he would use would be prostitution and adultery. These were, I think, words he used to scare his high-caste audiences into the the horrors of kind of social enemy and malaise and the corruption of women to get them to realize that the costs of this practice were heinous on whatever level he looked at them. But he was also really troubled by the just the sheer greed and the ways in which women were just completely lost from view in, in these processes of exchange. Walk us through some of the objections he raises. What are the arguments he makes against it? Well, it's interesting. You so the book is framed actually around seven objections that he attempts to address. So it's very much like a, you're a Sanskrit scholar, you know this sort of Purvapaksha kind of idea. And mm -hmm. So he's got all these um, objections that he's made note of, and so the book proceeds through his attempt to answer each of these objections in turn by way of saying any anything you throw at me by way of saying a law against. Uh, cool and polygamy is invalid, I have an answer for. Um, and they begin with, as readers of the, the Hindu widow marriage translation were recognized with the, uh, probably the obvious place for a Sanskrit pundit to start is with the question of whether it's uh, congruent with what the Shastras teach, right? Is this, is this something that the Hindu scriptures even allow for? And of course, the proponents of it find passages in Manu and elsewhere to say it's clear that um, polygamy was allowed in the classical period, and and therefore we have scriptural warrant. But he mounts his own counterattack on that, and he musters a lot of uh, classical, medieval, and sources, nibandhas, and Shastras and all of that sort of thing. So he does the kind of first two objections are really focused on 
the kind of um, scriptural warrant and some of the development around the, the practice. That's probably more interest to Sanskritists and scholars of uh, colonial Hindu law. But then the, the remaining five objections, he moves into everything from what this might do to the to the established practices among certain groups of Kayastas who basically have made a business, as he puts it, out of doing this, and they don't want to see that business and those opportunities disrupted, right on through uh, objections from some of what he calls the, the new newly educated community who think we don't have to legislate against this at all because education is going to take care of the problem. We're, we're becoming rapidly enlightened here in Bengal, and so with time, people are just going to move away from this kind of practice. And um, so he's got answers to all these objections. Um, and in that case, he simply mounts um, a, a bunch of evidence, if you will, to show them that, look, you say modern education is making a difference, but look at these figures. And he goes out in the, in the field, and we're talking about field work. He actually gathers numbers, uh, and more than that, names and uh, ages and numbers of marriages for men in the district of Hulugan to the sort of west of Kolkata. And he lists them uh, at extenso. Uh, and, it, and it's really quite striking. I mean, it's a really interesting tactic to embed in the text. These lists of hundreds of names. And he gives the actual first name, last name, age of the person, where they live, how many marriages they've had. And of course, it wouldn't, couldn't do that today, <laughs> right? Probably it's to violate uh, our, our policies around how to conduct research. But he's, he's trying to make a point. Uh, and it's, it's very, very powerful. And I, and I, talk to more than one person when they, they read the, the work. That's one of the things that sticks in their minds are just these lists. It brings home the, the evident uh, sort of extent of this problem, that it's not something that is vanishing. It's actually carrying on robustly. It's quite, the work is quite, um, I want to say litigious in how he sets it out. And can you tell us a bit about Ajisagar's background? Tell us a bit about the man behind the work. Well, you know, he's a Sanskrit pundit, so of a, of a kind of modern ilk, though. I mean, comes from a pundit family in the rural um, Bengal. But as some listeners will know, he, uh, of course, benefits from the creation of a new college in Kolkata by the British, known as the Calcutta Government Sanskrit College. And so he's educated there. It's a traditional curriculum, but it's delivered in this new institution. So it's a kind of a hybrid uh, form of Sanskrit education, but he goes on and earns the title of Vidashagur or um, Ocean of Learning and makes his name early on as a as an educator and publisher of, uh, of new works in Bangla that would kind of make the Bengali language easily accessible and also make the, the treasures of Sanskrit literature available in Bangla to uh, Bengali readers. So that's a big part of what he does, but Early on, he's also engaging with uh, what he sees as the issues of social change around him. He's, in many ways, the heir to Ramohan Roy. If listeners know about Ramohan Roy as the sort of the man who conducted his campaign against Sati or the practice of a widow immolation, Vidashagra uh, kind of takes up the next issue as well. If we get rid of widow immolation, then we have to take care of 
the widows themselves who will now be allowed to live their lives and not have to practice concremation or whatever. So he advances this this argument in 1855, uh, asking the British government to legalize second marriages for, for widows. And that's successful, and so that's probably where he gets his initial renown uh, and gains a lot of his expertise around how to conduct the kind of litigious and polemical work that you're referring to. He's quite skillful at mounting this kind of argument, and he has got a dual audience of convincing the Bengali public, but also convincing the the British colonial authorities that this is uh, a reform they can embrace. And in, as I try to show in the book, in the 1850s, the British were amenable to that kind of argument, and they were willing to intervene in uh, kind of religious and social affairs to enact this legislation. Uh, by the 1870s, we've had the, the so-called rebellion or the mutiny, and they're much more anxious. They're, they're far less interested in intervening anymore, some of them feeling that it actually had been aggressive reform like the widow marriage campaign that might have lit the spark under the the rebellion itself. So this the, the times have just changed incredibly by 1871. And I think this is one point where we see Vidash Agar's not quite keeping up with the changes, not quite seeing that this sort of attempt is no longer going to succeed with the British. And at the same time, his, his Bengali uh, contemporaries are also increasingly reluctant to keep going to the British to ask them to solve their uh, affairs. They, they begin to say, let's take care of our own affairs. Let's, uh, you know, if we have problems, we'll, we'll address them ourselves. We don't need to ask the British to do this. So he's he's kind of failed to see that the times have changed so much. So the widow marriage campaign succeeds. This one is a failure. It doesn't issue into any legislation. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. But as I put in the book, I, I think it's interesting that the widow marriage was a success that basically turned out to be a failure because that reform didn't really lead to any widespread change in marriage practices in Bengal. And it actually may have inadvertently led to an increase of uh, prohibition on widow marriage amongst certain caste groups. So it, it had the, the sort of unintended consequence of promoting the idea that, oh, if you want high status, you should not allow your widows to so, unfortunately, it was kind of a failure, whereas this, this book was a, a failure, you could say. But in some sense, it portended the success that by, the say, the 20th century, uh, cool and polygamy really had pretty much begun to, 
fade away as a as a viable uh, system any longer. Uh, though it would take up until the Indian Code Bill before polygamy would be officially outlawed. So that's a that's a long story. No, that's but anyway, that's great. And anyway, and I've gone on a greater length, but I just no, that's great because each to another. Well, that's uh, that's the way it goes. Uh, and also, you you essentially uh, unwittingly preempted uh, one of the questions on my list, which was how successful was this campaign, or you know, what was the effect of of, of this work? And so that's great. You touched on that. So another question you had in mind that you touched on in passing is um, the dual audience. So do you have? Okay, let me let me rephrase phrase that. Who do you feel was the primary intended audience of this work? Yeah, well, I think it was. I mean, I'm going to stick to the idea of it being two audiences, really. Uh, you know, Bidna Shaker had served on a committee that had been um, formed by the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Beaton, to pursue the topic. Because Beaton had kind of made noises that he would address this problem. So there was some sense in the air that maybe the British would deal with this through legislative enactment. And there had been proposals prior to this um, uh, work of the Dashagers to try to get this done. So he'd been he'd served on a committee, and the committee was formed of a number of Bengalis and intellectuals, judges, uh, jurists, uh, university people. And they couldn't come to an agreement and finally uh, opted not to support the idea of any intervention. And this really disappointed the Dutch Auger. So he's got to he knows he's got to convince the British the committee avenue's not going to work. So I think he's writing to them now to his own moral moral sort of from his own pulpit, if you will. And but he's got the British uh, Bengali reading public as well. And uh they're become more and more sophisticated in their readership. You know, there's more and more journals by this point. There are more and more competing voices in play. So, People like Bhagavan Chandra Chatterjee, for instance, the great uh, literature and social critic himself, who was no great fan of the Dajavars. And so there, you've got to kind of win over these other highly educated, highly competent Bengali um, social critics. And so he's fighting this, this dual front. Um, and that it kind of gives the work a, an interesting feel, I think. On the topic of audiences, who is this translation for? Who might most benefit from this translation? Well, you know, I always worry with these works um, that there's a there's a limited audience in this insofar as how many people are interested in marriage practices in colonial Bengal. But if you broaden it out to think about colonialism more generally, or colonial law, or the processes of social reform in it's like colonial India. Then I think there's a readership there for South Asian historians, uh, scholars of intellectual history, colonialism, post-colonial studies, etc. Um, I gave it the title against high caste polygamy. It's a it's a more robust title than he used. His was just uh, plural marriage doesn't tell us much. So I deliberately chose a title that would reach out to uh, an audience that would recognize, uh, in particular, the words like caste. And chose high caste because this is, you know, these are privileged caste communities uh, that we're talking about. But I thought that might at least communicate we're in the realm of uh, Hindu social custom. Uh, and so I think scholars and teachers of Hinduism, students of Hinduism, thinking in particular about gender, um, 
and the role of women and the status of women and the transform transformations and lingering issues under that score, uh, all I think are possible audiences. Um, I was really pleased that I could use a photograph I took myself um, of, a, of a Hindu widow entering a, a shrine in, in West Bengal because I it had been easy to pick like a sepia-tinted image of a woman you know, from a colonial lithograph or something like that, but that would have, to my mind, sort of suggested this is a work entirely of the past in some ways. And I think the legacy of all these issues around the treatment and status of women in South Asian culture linger down to the present, not least around ancillary issues like uh, inheritance, property rights, etc. And all these these issues have not been worked out. Here we are, um, 200 years after Dashagra's birth date, we're, India is still struggling with how to uh, achieve real gender justice. So I, I, I'm happy to have a cover that registers a kind of contemporaneity to it, even if the, the issue was uh, obviously late 19th century. So I well, mean, there's a broad, broader audience to answer your question. But, uh, 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 just touch, uh, first of all, absolutely, there's a broader audience, which is um, um, without question there is. There, there always is. It's a question of reaching it as a question, to my mind, of... The work that we do as scholars, the, the hair-splitting work that we do is important. But our motivations, consciously or unconsciously, our interests, um, they tie into much larger, they overlap with the interests of much larger swaths of people. You know, oh, what, what, what the heck do I study? I study the Devi Mahatmya. I study, a, you know, an ancient Indian narrative about, you know, uh, the, 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 the first stories of the great goddess in India. Great. Well, David Mahatmya, well, I don't know what that is. Itiasa Purana, who the heck knows what that is? I study the very first stories of uh, the great goddess in India, which to my knowledge is really the only, the world's only living, vibrant following of a great goddess figure that has survived from antiquity and et cetera, et cetera. So I study how to read stories. You know, all of a sudden, okay, anyone interested in reader response theory or versa echo or blah, 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 blah. I think, I think there always is a broader, um, their broader connotations. And that's what I love to bring out on these podcasts. Like that's why I keep it so high level because if folks are interested, they will grab a book. They know already if they need this for their research or their teaching or their personal edification. But thinking about this, listen, uh, the, the, the issue of the treatment of women is not just something that has been, uh, needs to be worked out in South Asia, but hello, look at the oh. moment in history we're living through. And certainly there may be uh, others, uh, people interested in this issue coming at it from other disciplines who might be interested. So uh, without question, there there's a broader audience for the book. Um, secondly, that photo, it's quite captivating. Uh, I must have missed the photo credit, um, but I didn't realize it was yours. Actually, it's, it's, it holds a lure, right? Like you want to follow her. You want to see where she's going in that, in that threshold. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, the, the, it captures the idea of liminality really well of being in a threshold between spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was really pleased. I had actually a little tussle with the press because they have very uh, firm policy about um, anonymity and not revealing identity of photographic subjects. And I, I'm, I fully support that. And I made the case that, look, I don't think this woman is identifiable. She's fully veiled. She's turned away from the camera. She's entering the space. But they were they were they wanted to proceed cautiously. Their first instinct was no way we can't use this. But I 
was so grateful. I had contacts in the village, and I threw a friend in Kolkata who could watch that this person in the village and speak to them and share the photo around. He couldn't even in the village identify who the woman was, so he said, I think you can certainly use this image. So I took that back to the press, and the press was satisfied that, okay, don't name the village, and so it's it seems highly unlikely that anyone could be identified. But to me, it was... Yeah, I just really, really wanted to stick with it because the the idea of um, uh, a kind of full frontal passive woman from the 19th century who's seated in a parlor and in a kind of photographic studio, it just didn't, it seemed to objectify her and not give her the kind of agency that we see with this woman. Um, and I think, you know, Binda Chagres, I make the point that his goal in these works is really to get Bengalis to recognize the women around them and the practices uh, or well the, their social evils that uh, fall them fall upon them because of the practices of Bengal Brahmins and other caste groups. And so he really wants Bengalis to see them. So I wanted to have an image that kind of also helped to see them in a real way. So I'm glad you I'm glad you appreciated it. Uh, personally would you say a quick word about your process, your translation process? What's that like for you? Yeah, and thanks for asking that, because um, there's one element of the, of the translation I want to highlight, and I'm eager and will be waiting eagerly to hear what uh, any reviewers might say. But um, usually I'll sit down, as I said, with a, with a pencil and paper and prefer to kind of work that way, um, scribbling and crossing out. I feel like when I start on the keyboard, I begin editing too robustly and I lose track of the rhythm of the translation, just attending to the language. Usually I'll do that as a kind of a rough translation, very literal. I mean, I'll be as close to the literal translation as I can, rough in the sense that it won't sound very good, right? It's because I'm sticking so close to the to the verbatim meaning. And then once I've gotten that out, I'll, I'll take the handwritten translation, and then I'll begin transcribing that onto a Word document. And then that's the time I, I try to listen to the words and see if they sound right in English, and then think about the idioms and some of the varying tonality that he may have as he's engaging, uh, whether it's a, it's really a uh, British administrative kind of audience in this moment, or whether he's talking to his fellow Bengalis, he's got a measure of sarcasm and irony that comes through in certain places. So you, you kind of want to see if you're capturing that. So in that transcription process, I have a chance to listen a little more and probably I'll risk taking the text a little more away from the literal in order to capture some of the spirit of it, hopefully, I hope. Um, and then, you know, just after that, it's a matter of uh, further revision to see that the thing kind of feels as if it reads in English as well as it does in, in Bengali. One of the things I did, and if you allow me to just say this because it's a thing, I'm kind of curious how people will respond. I mentioned earlier those lists. Though in, in certain points, Midashagra introduces quite a bit of detailed evidence, which is one of the elements I'm also eager for readers to discover because I make the case that he's doing some things in here that make him something like an early social scientist. He's gathering data. He's doing kind of statistical sort of proto-statistical studies, and he's um, 
sort of engaging in a kind of ethnography really, of what's happening to women in villages around West Bengal. Um, but what I decided was some of these lists, because they'll drop them in the middle of an objection, and they'll take several pages just to look through the names, they have a slightly disruptive effect on the flow of his argument. So I decided to take them out, put them in a section of the book at the back called um, Supporting Evidence, and then I just, uh, in, in an asterisk and an unambiguous reference number there in the text, so that you know, okay, right here, something's been moved to the back. You can go look at it if you want to, but if you're enjoying or just kind of appreciating the flow of the argument at that point, you don't necessarily need to see it, uh, and it can be stuck back there. That can include long lists of caste names and villages and some of the data that helps unpack the, the specifics of golden history, but I don't think most English language readers are going to need to see that uh, primarily. But those of us with the interest in their sort of philological curiosity, Sanskrit texts, this kind of thing, I put that in the back um, just to just to kind of make the 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 argument and the rhetoric more to the fore and let the evidence sit back there. It's still all there. Nothing's been taken out. It's just been moved. Um, and I hope is that it, the, the book is a little more accessible. That. Without question. I mean, the the details are there for those who need them or are interested in them. The, the, the data is there. And so all you're doing is, you know, creating footnotes or creating this, uh, this appendix sort of situation. And so it makes sense to my mind that you're, you, well, what you do is you, you, you render more clear the line of thought within the main body yeah. and so but not at the expense it's not that it's not that that data ends up on the cutting room floor it's there for yeah. those who need it and so i think you have the best no i mean to see you have the best of both worlds yeah. in there yeah right yeah. um so it's mentioned footnotes it's interesting uh you know he was a because he was a, a prolific writer and publisher in his own right he had his own printing press he's quite good at the kind of paratextual apparatus himself so the, there are footnotes in the text, and those are all his, and the text is complete with footnotes. Uh, he uses them quite skillfully. Ones that I I felt were just um, Udvana Tato 2.1 or something, I took those out, put that in the body of the text that, so that a reader found it. But it, he also uses more uh, expository footnotes, and I left all of those in because those will be what you see and thinking and seeing you hit. You see him deciding what's important, but not sort of need to be the main argument, but should be at the bottom of the page. So that's kind of nice. Uh, and then all the end notes are mine, so the footnotes are his, notes are mine. And I think again that helps kind of keep it clean and clear what's going on. Um, so what do you uh, most hope folks would take away from this? What are what what are key sort of what's your key argument other than the translation itself? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, I, I think one of the uh, two two things, if I can be allowed to have two a twofold takeaway, two or one takeaway, as many <laughs> as you want. There is the translation, obviously, uh, and I tried to let that be what it is, and hope that people will find it and, and do with it some things that I might not even be able to imagine the questions they might bring to it, uh, the uses they might put it to, and I hope I haven't done any disservice to it such that it can serve that for English language readers and maybe encourage some to go off and discover the Bangla text. The other thing I would want to do is to provide the 
through the introduction that I provided, both the historical context to understand this changing moment in which the work is created. And then I've added quite a bit about my own interpretation of what's distinctive about the work, even compared to the other great work uh, that he did on social reform or on widow marriage, are these elements of data collection and empirical study and sort of proto-sociological method that I made a case elsewhere that this is not a Bidlashagar people are accustomed to seeing. They tend to think of him as a Sanskrit pundit, therefore he's kind of hidebound, therefore he's not open to new methodologies or epistemologies. But in here, he really shows us that he's paying attention. He's part of the world in which the census is coming online as a way to gather data about Indian peoples. He's attentive to the idea of kind of positivistic research. He also uses a mode of historical critical analysis that, again, we don't associate with pundits. We think of pundits as just going and finding proof texts and showing them at one another. But he's actually asking, is this a valid text? Um, to On what does its authority, authority rest? Can we can we actually trust it, right? So he's, he's going back and he's unpacking the narratives around pluralism that have been generated from within the communities. And he's asking, uh, to what degree do these hold water, right? Which is I think uh, something I'd love readers to take away is to realize this is a, yes, a Sanskrit pundit, but he's working with a really robust set of tools, many of them quite, quote unquote, modern, right? Uh, and very sophisticated. So it's a, it's more than just a, an exercise in, in scripture. Well, it's, it's far more uh, it's complex work, and that's what I'd hope people might discover. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, is there anything else about the work that you would like to touch on for today? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I appreciated your question about translation. I think that's a really important issue. You and I think a lot about it. I know I always err on the side of trying to be pretty resolute about being consistent in how I translate my terms, whether they're Sanskrit or Bengali. I'm sure you're, you're saying is that if I translate Adivedana, say, as supersession, then I'll always translate it as supersession. I try to, in that sense, so that a reader reading in English has some trust because I I provided glossaries in the back, both from the Sanskrit and Bala to English and then from English so that they can find their way into text. And I, and I like to be as consistent as I can be that way without playing fast and loose with the terminology. So um, I hope that might be appreciated. But um, last thing I'd say is just a big shout out to all the people who helped me with it in that lockdown period when we're communicating by Zoom and email and WhatsApp and all of that. Uh, you're never really alone, it turns out. You can still be connected and benefit from all this expertise and just supporting kindness out there. So that's that's, uh, that's maybe a nice thing to end with. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. <laughs> thank you for having me, Raj. You take care. Let's do it again. Absolutely. For those listening, of course, um, we have been speaking um, with Brian Hatcher on a brand new OUP publication against high caste polygamy. This is part of the AAR Religion and Translation series. Um, a lot to think about in the content of this work and also about this fascinating figure and the way in which he was uh, thinking about um his own culture and times. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, um, keep reading, and um, keep contemplating such figures of the past and the extent to which they are modern, quote-unquote, versus pre-modern. 
Take care.